Hello. My name is Tim Abrahams and this is Super Urbanism. Super Urbanism is about the craft of city making and a platform for the most interesting ideas on how we should build them by the people who make them. I write about architecture and cities, subjects about which I am very passionate and about which I have strong opinions. It feels right to start this new podcast at the Architecture Biennale in Venice. Since 1980, the Venice Biennale has been a place where architects go to think about their purpose, their role, about what architecture is for. So for a podcast that wants to gauge where architecture is at, wants to learn about new ideas, the new discussions, the new debates, it's a really good place to be. But even before we get to that, I think we should also bear in mind that this Biennale, the one in 2023, almost didn't happen. Indeed, Biennales almost stopped happening. I came to Venice to see the event in 2021, rescheduled from 2020 because of the COVID lockdowns. And there was a real air of crisis about the organisation. Obviously, this is partly because the city was eerily quiet. There were no tourists because of the lockdowns. But the Biennale itself was denuded of life. There were no parties, no cocktails. Biennale thrive on international travel and free movement to create places of exchange, cultural exchange. And there was a number of ideas being mooted that we didn't need to do these anymore. Travel didn't need to happen. Now, I know that there aren't many cultural organisations that had really good lockdowns, but Venice seemed to be in a particularly desperate situation. There were genuinely people who were saying the days of big events are over. We have Zoom. Travelling isn't necessary anymore. We don't need to do these big shows. And I think it's important to think about that with regard to this year's event, this sense of crisis. And particularly for Roberto Giacuto, who became president of all the Venice Biennales on the very eve of the Covid lockdowns. The first lockdown happened a week after he was appointed president. I remember the first trip to Venice, it was incredible. And then it was difficult to, to do back and forth because I live in Rome. In a way it was beautiful because as everybody remembers, uh, the landscape uh, were incredibly good, but it was scary. We didn't know anything about it. And my first decision has been a very difficult to be taken because we have to decide, we decided to postpone the architecture exhibition for, to the next year. And this was, uh, actually we didn't know exactly what this pandemic would have been, uh, when it would have ended up. So somebody told me, no, 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 try, try, try. But then when we realized that it wasn't possible to, for the architects to make their installations and then the shipping, and then uh, we understood that it wasn't possible. But... We used this place, the Central Pavilion, for doing an exhibition curated by the six artistic directors of the Biennale to tell the history of the Biennale using the heritage in the, the, in, in the archive, historical archive of the Biennale. 
And this was very important because it was at the beginning of the project to build an international center to research on contemporary art. And this is what we are building up now. So you used the opportunity to... To, con to consider the history of the Biennale, I wouldn't call it opportunity. We took the risk uh, to do something in, in order not to leave alone, abandon the places where the Biennale exhibition usually uh, live. But the second risk we took at the time was even more challenging because we decided to work for doing the film festival, and we did it. It was the first big manifestation uh, event in person made that year. But also, another opportunity is that we started a very serious process for getting the decarbonization, the carbonic neutrality. And we started collecting data from the people who were coming to visit the thing, and we discovered a lot of things. Then we we, we did a kind of dialogue with the people attending here, asking them how they would have got here, uh, how many nights, uh, and, and also we started working with uh, uh, energetic sources green, and, all, and the, on the other hand, uh, what we couldn't do in practical, we do uh, financial compensation. We fund project against the CO2 emissions uh, and, and for the first time last year I think the first international cultural institution which achieved that we have been recognized with the certificate of neutral carbonic emission certificate sorry English is a little bit confused no, no, no. That's, that's really interesting uh, this is I was told by Christiana here, that this was your first, uh, you were working for the first time with a curator you chose yourself. You've just described a very interesting process. How did, how did the selection of the curator play into that in terms of when it happened and how it okay, happened? Okay, from the beginning, uh, I thought that after Hashim's uh, exhibition, it would be better to go on with a curator who wasn't an architect, someone who cares about how to build buildings. And it was very much more important to have someone who thinks of architecture and what architectures should be in nowadays. Because, you know, during the pandemic, architecture has been asked, in a way, to solve many concrete problems, uh, how people could live better if we had to face another pandemic crisis or, of course, all the other things about sustainability. Leslie Locko curated this year's Biennale. Now, Leslie's a really interesting person. Her background is much more in architectural education rather than architecture per se. She established the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg in 2014. Then, after that, she founded the Africa Futures Institute at Accra in Ghana with Mellon Foundation and Ford Foundation money. She's now director there. On top of this very impressive pedigree of going into difficult situations and setting up new institutions, 
Leslie has another career, which she does find a little bit embarrassing, but to me gives an insight to her resilience. And Leslie convinced me because she, first of all, she knows how to speak about architecture. She cares very much about transferring the, the, the value of architecture to young people. What she has written about that and the institution she created in Africa were exactly uh, what I was thinking as an experience which would have been very important to know. And then when she explained that she wanted to start from Africa uh, as a laboratory to be confronted with the rest of the world considering that Africa has faced the crisis much earlier than the other parts, uh, other parts of the world, I thought that this is the person I was, I'm looking for. That's it. And this is your first post-pandemic Biennale and also your first personal pandemic. How do you feel today? I feel happy because touring in the exhibition, I really understood how much I don't know about Africa how much I don't know about uh, different voices uh, and so happened to many, many other people. So if this exhibition uh, pushed people to be more curious, uh, to have a, a different vision, uh, not to think of Africa the way they have been thinking for the rest of their life, uh, I think we achieved something important. Fantastic. Thank you. For, oh, no, thank you. That's great. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank, thank you for your time. Grazie. Thank you. Thank Tim, you. if you like to, to come to Cajusinian, we, we have a, a cocktail each evening. Oh, fantastic. Uh, no? fantastic. It's a Cajusinian, it's a, the Biennale headquarters. Okay, no? oh, that'd be so, lovely. Fantastic, fantastic. I, I, I'll check. I've, this is the first year I've done a Google spreadsheet with my times. Okay. So okay, I need to consult. So, yeah, yeah. Bye. Ah, cocktails. Do you remember those pictures during lockdown? We showed dolphins in the Venice Lagoon that later turned out to be fakes. And what they had written underneath them, nature is returning. I asked Leslie how it felt when she was approached to be curator of the Venice Biennale. Perhaps, first of all, you could introduce yourself. Okay, <laughs> my name is Leslie Loco. I'm the curator of the 18th International Architecture Exhibition at the Biennale di Venezia. I was almost kind of trying to reduce this question down to a kind of like, what would you like this Biennale to do? But that seems quite rude and abrupt. Um, uh, but then what do you want people to take from it is a bit... Mm-hmm. It's kind of up, up to them. So I suppose, um, what would you like the Biennale to do? I, I think the the most honest answer to that is that there are several things. So the Biennale is often described only in terms of its relationship to its audience, like what does, what does the audience want or what do you want the audience to, to take away? But I think the Biennale has many audiences. Um, we often focus on the relationship between practitioner or participant and audience, but participant to participant is also a kind of audience. Curated to participant is another kind of audience. So. I think each of those communities, let's say, who come to work on something like this, will each take away something different. For the practitioner-to-practitioner exchange or interchange, 
I hope confidence comes out of out of this particular Biennale because the subject matter was quite vulnerable for many. It was quite emotive. I think for the audience, one one strong wish is to impart a sense of hope, uh, a sense of optimism, and maybe a sense of curiosity. I I think it's very easy to it's very easy to other otherness, you know, as if it happens somewhere else in the world that has nothing to do with anyone here. You know, we talk about the Islamic world, the Muslim world, the developing world, the third world, as if these were worlds that you know are not part and parcel of our own world. Um, and my hope, in a way, is that people understand those relationships in a much more complex and intertwined way. That that's that's very interesting. You you you, you said for the practitioners that that it was um, they could feel vulnerable. Yeah. Perhaps you could explain mm-hmm. a little bit more about what that. You, what you mean I mean, that. if I think back to you know thirty years ago, my first um, my first year in architecture school, um, like most students, I think we opened up Bannister Fletcher, and I remember being told that the tree of architecture was the kind of fundamental. It was the first text, if you like, and I looked at it, and there was no Africa. And I remember coming away from that thinking, either they forgot to put us in, or we had nothing of value to put in. And I would say that my undergraduate um, years were about about a sense of shame, I would say, that, that, that somehow my world, my people, my people's history in a way was just their experiences, our, our ways of seeing the world were just not present in, in, in the material. In, in postgraduate, it was different because I found the freedom there to, to, to argue for something. I think in, in undergraduate, it was much, much more difficult. But I think that that's something that has persisted. And so when you talk to students of color, black, brown, other, there is still a very strong desire to, to insert oneself into, into this canon, to insert oneself into the discipline. And that comes with vulnerability because you don't know if the material is valuable enough. You don't know if it's mature enough. You don't know if it's relevant enough. Um, and, you know, Talking about issues of race and identity are very, they're, they're deeply personal issues. That in order to come to the table authentically, you have to come to the table openly. And that often involves quite a lot of vulnerability. Yeah. Um, there's this very interesting kind of set of descriptions and with vulnerability being foregrounded there. Um, and on the other, other side, we have, um, if we look at Africa itself, as from my perspective, having you know raced around and looked, the central pavilion seems to foreground particularly mm-hmm. um, a, a, an African, uh, yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. A fo- it's focused more on Africa, yeah. whereas there's a blended kind yeah. of approach to yeah. kind of, um, a blended approach in the the Arsenale. Um, And there's a, 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 the, the, the urbanization as it happens anywhere, China, or as it happens in, in Europe in the 19th century, is a br- quite a, a brutal, mm-hmm. brutal process. How, how do you take that vulnerability and how does it inform that, that brutality? Brutality. Yeah, very good question. I mean, I think um, to have agency over one's own future. Um, is 
it's, it's a process. You, you're, not, you're not kind of born with agency, you're, you're taught the means by which you acquire it. And I think education is a very important part of that. And, you know, for, for us in, in the global south who are really at the, the fulcrum of forces that we are often not aware of or, or in control of because we, we don't come to the table as equals, we come to the tables either as recipients of aid or recipients of charity or ripe for exploitation. It's been that kind of history. In order to combat that, you have to have a sense of, of your own agency in the discussions. For me, it was very important to come to this Biennale as, as an equal, not to come as uh, a recipient of, of someone's charity. We talked, to, or I talked, I was very hesitant about the term guest from the future because that implies a kind of relationship with a host and that you are not, you don't have a rightful place at the table, you have to be invited. But the, the theme of the guests from the future is that one day these will become the hosts. And it's through processes like education, through processes like the Biennale, through dialogue, that actually that vulnerability is, is tempered. Or the, the statement that I made um, about Toni Morrison you know, this morning is that you know, out of these moments of great dread and, and chaos and confusion and fear, comes not only knowledge, but also wisdom. And wisdom and knowledge are not exactly the same thing. And, you know, to go back to your first question, what do I hope that people will take away, is, is maybe wisdom in, in the end, not, not knowledge. And it's that relationship between vulnerability, fear, agency, determination, and I guess hope that, that wisdom is, is made. Um, you were the first curator that Robert Chik Roberto Chikuto mm. um, invited. What, what did he, um, there's the official kind of commission, uh, but then you're two human beings. Mm -hmm. And what was the kind of human brief, Connection, he, yeah. human brief he gave you? It's really interesting. I mean, um, I was taught by Jonathan Hill at the Bartlett um, about 30 years ago. And Jonathan, I mean, in some ways, he was the worst introduction to teaching I could ever have had. I taught with him straight after studying. And he was the worst introduction because I thought after two years with him that teaching was always going to be like that. And Jonathan was a very interesting figure. He was incredibly intellectually open, incredibly intellectually gen generous and also incredibly intellectually confident. And that confidence meant that he could take on difference. He could take on things that were outside of his experience because nothing actually rattled his, his own sense of self. And in a curious way, I've waited 30 years, and Shikuto's a little bit like that. So he's a filmmaker, not an architect, but someone with a very strong sense of self, which means that he's not in competition with other selves. He's incredibly open to it. And we have experienced moments of great... Um, challenge, I think, in, in the putting together of this exhibition. But I'm, I don't say it lightly when I say he offered it a home. And it's a home that had many rooms in it. I mean, some of the rooms were more temporary than others. But that openness and generosity in him was always there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did he... What did he tell you what he wanted? What did he say? Give me, Nothing. Give me this, give me that. Nothing, no, just no. Go do it. Yeah, and I mean, it was. Why, 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 you know, it's always one of these questions that people kind of start asking. I've, I've asked, I've been talking to three, three, three people today, and each of them said, um, at some stage, I'm not quite. I said, so what, what, why do you think you got the gig? <laughs> and they said, I'm not quite sure. I think it's maybe time to ask. 
Why do you think I got the gig? Why do, why do you think? I mean, I think it's, a, I mean, to be honest, in, in the most cynical terms, I mean, it was about time, you know. I mm. mean, George Floyd had happened, Black Lives Matter, there was a pandemic, I'd resigned from New York. If you were going to try to make a statement about difference, I mean, there's not that many of us, <laughs> let's say. It, it, it was not an easy thing to take on. Um, being a black woman in architecture, the specter of tokenism, I mean, since long. But I also, when, when he first invited me for a, a, a meeting, I thought he was asking me to validate somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I literally came in the room and said, no, I think he's a great choice, I think he's gonna be fantastic. It was not in my mind at all that this would be me. Mm -hmm. And I had, I mean, my institute was four months old, I had nothing. And so my first reaction was, that there is absolutely no way I can do this. Um, and the other aspect of this job is, you know, the incredible effort that's gone into fundraising to make it possible. I mean, that's something that, you know, most people who come to do this, they have resources of their own or they have a school or an office. I had zip. In the end, my father always used to say to me, look, you go out there into the world and people's expectations of you will be generally higher than most other people because most people think you can't do it. You can't take on those expectations. That's not your, that's not your burden. That's not your job. What, all you can do is the work. And I think that's what the teams have done. The teams of curatorial assistants, the teams of participants, the teams of donors, I said it this morning, they did the work. In the end, whether the exhibition is judged on, on its merits as a token appointment or on its merits as a work, I think that's up to the work. To use the phrase of Adam Tooze, the economist, this was very much the polycrisis biennale. There's a sense that from the institutional side there was COVID going on in the background and having to justify their existence from Loco's side there was the black lives matter crisis which began in the u.s which had implications though in africa and and europe and if you looked at some of the installations some of the the work on show it's very much a, an ecological crisis pulsing away in the background the biennale though made me start to think about the historical narrative beyond it and particularly the one centered on africa about the one billion more urban Africans who, regardless of all equivocations, need homes, schools, hospitals, all the other attributes of urban living. I mean, Biennales are art shows, they're architecture shows, they're not going to solve the entire crisis of humanity, but they are about offering solutions. And I thought in many ways this exhibition could be the beginning of something special. So I wondered how the Biennale could go on supporting the programme Leslie was putting forward about Africa. You said it, it's about time. Um, do you think there should be a permanent presence for Africa at the Biennale going forward? Do you know what I mean? I think that's for our individual countries to, to find the political will to, to, to make happen. I mean, we're the world's youngest continent, I keep saying it. We're the world's fastest urbanising continent. We have the fewest schools per capita of, edu you know, of architectural education. We have the fewest per capita architects. So in a sense, the, the, the broader conversation about architecture is absent. I mean, uh, you, ask, you ask my grandmother, what, what do I do? She'd say, I'm an engineer. Like, even the word architect is a little bit strange. And that's for us to change. It's not, you know, it's not for, the, for the Biennale to... That, that's not the Biennale's job. That, that's our job. And so you know, the more we are visible, in, not just in the global north, but actually in the places where we're from, the more prominence we give to the role of, of the architect. When I was... You know, when I started the graduate school in Johannesburg, one of the things that was very interesting immediately was that there was very little architectural discourse in the city. I mean, there were, whatever it was, six schools, but, you know, they didn't have lecture series, they didn't have events, they didn't have discussions, blah, blah, blah. 
we were found funding to do that and suddenly there was an architectural culture emerging in the city again. It's the same thing at the African Futures Institute in Accra. We now have talks, we have people flying in. We, we, we talk about architecture to the broader, broader city, to the broader city community. You know, in, in, in 20 years time, maybe there will be permanent um, African pavilions or there'll be an African Biennale. I mean, who knows exactly how those things will swing. But um, we cannot rely on the charity of others to, to, to show up in, in the world in this way. That, that's our problem. It's got to be argued for. It's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be fought for. And maybe, and maybe a pavilion here is not the best means for it to happen. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe yeah. it's another another event in, in Africa, as you've suggested. Or maybe it is the presence of you know thirty people that the global world is looking at, who are of African descent, that inspire three hundred thousand people to, to to choose architecture. Mm -hmm. So I think you know change works, and I think I've said it in really incremental ways. Sometimes that you can't predict. Leslie's Biennale might be best thought of as a launch pad for her African Futures Institute in Accra, or for other institutions as yet unborn. Yeah, her Biennale is a bid for a new kind of institution to be built in places that have lacked them. How have you found it, when you think about the Institute in Accra, how do you, and you mentioned it was very early days for that, so you had, you know, how... I would imagine you've had to somehow combine, yeah, combine no. the two, combine the two things, and, and the, the process of curating seems such a all-consuming. Yeah, yeah. So it seems such a kind of cute curating can be. You know, there's always I always laugh when you go through Heathrow. There's a pub called the Curator. Um, so curating, direct, you know, you, uh, the terminology is, is moot. But how have you found it in relation to the institute, and how? seems un very unfair to start saying what, you, what are you going to do next, how are you going to make it work for the Institute, but I'm mm -hmm. sorry, that's that yeah, question. Yeah, no. How do you think that that, that that will lead on? I mean, it's led on already. Um, mm. So one of the things, you know, the Institute has three arms, as one is research, one is public events, and one is teaching. So what we did initially, as soon as the appointment was made, was we pivoted away from teaching to, to the research. So I had these three, the, these teams of young researchers who were the ones who scanned literally the continent and the diaspora for this talent that you see there. So there's been an, an ongoing research project that's, that's taken up a lot of our, our, our time and activity. And there's been kind of public talks about the Biennale, about the process and so on, so it's been very much alive. But we've just signed a memorandum of understanding with the government of Benin, which is two countries along from us. So the first teaching component of the AFI will open in Cotonou in 2025. And that's a massive project, I'm, I'm already in it. So, you know, the Biennale, catapulted the African Futures Institute in, into a global stage in a way. And because I'm philanthropically funded, that's given me access to funders I would never have had. So in, in a strange way, it's been an ongoing kind of back and forth all the way through. And it's been tough as hell at times because of just lack of manpower and resources and support. But it's also been the most um, incredible opportunity. Just to pick up on the idea of manpower, there were a number of issues with visas. How, how, how have you... To what degree have they been resolved and to what degree are they still outstanding? Oh, they, I mean, they're, they're perennially outstanding, yeah. I mean, that's, that's just the reality but of it. specifically related here? They, yeah, they yeah, sorry, I had three members of my team who were denied, but I mean, in, in a sense, that's nothing new. I mean, I think for, for maybe some people in the audience, this is a bit of a shock, but for us, it's just like a part of the course. I think um, the ability to speak about it publicly in an event like this is, is a great one. Again, it's a great platform. But is one Biennale going to change you know, Schengen policy, hell no. 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 
has it inhibited the how did you have to react to that was it uh, were they key man power issues or is it yeah no they were you know they were but I mean, there were just participants who were denied the opportunity to see the fruits of their labour. But as I've said sort of publicly, the story of you know Africans being used for their labour but not for their for their presence is, is it's an old one. Yeah. Um, and I'm keen that it's. I mean, there's an ongoing. There, there will be an ongoing project um, taken up by participants in this Biennale to to highlight, but to do it carefully and and to do it kind of intelligently. But I think nobody's under any illusion that one show is going to change. In what way is it speaking to government? Speaking is it? I think it'll be a range of different things. Yeah, um, and it's a, it's a it's a a decision that has to be taken collectively yeah. mm -hmm. amongst the participants. participants so yeah. the participants involved in this event are going to get together and continue yeah. to yeah. to make advocate for for the for, for, for the participants will get together to to decide how to how to address this because it's not it's not a subject that we can leave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And will you be involved in that? I hope not. I think this is, you know, my job has been to, to put the platform out there and, and to allow others to, to take the stage on it. Yeah. You know, it really does go to show you how deeply entrenched some of the political and cultural relationships that this Biennale is addressing really are. Loco, though, also knows what potentials the organisation has and how its work feeds into the wider world of culture and architecture and education. Perhaps this is because she's lived what we might call another life and has great perspective as a consequence. As I've been going, going around uh, the exhibition, um, I did my, you know, one, one, as a journalist, controversially, sometimes we do our research, do research and we do our reading, and I, I, I picked up one of your, one of your novels. <laughs> You're pulling a face. <laughs> Terribly embarrassed about them. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. When did? Why, why are you embarrassed about them? Sex and shopping novels. <laughs> you know, it's not what you've done. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that I, I kind of imagine they're good ones, though. But, but, but I'm, I'm not averse to a sex and shopping. Clearly, as soon as I found out, I was like, this is great. <laughs> Normally, the research. It's I a good. Do. It's a good beach read. <laughs> So how do you how how do you uh, as I was walking around, I was going there. There's two there's two worlds here. Just tell me a little bit about how they came to be and what and and. I mean, people have asked me this before, and it's a I think in some ways it's a bit of a shocking answer, but it is a true one, which is that um, when I was beginning to teach in in the UK, I realised that I needed generational wealth. Like you you cannot teach in London. You cannot you cannot survive on a part time teacher salary, a part time teacher salary. And I kept thinking about, well, what could I do to make some money? And I had gone to live in South Africa between 92 and 94, and I'd kept a diary at night, um, just because it was, it was just an interesting time. And when I came back to the UK and I was doing my diploma at the Bartlett, I used to work part-time in the holidays as a secretary, a temp secretary. And one, I think it was an Easter holiday, I worked for Helena Bonham Carter's brother, who was the head of a, head of a division in a bank. And on my way into work in the morning, I found this Time Out article. It was like a gag joke article, like how to write a blockbuster. And I literally read it from cover to cover, and I thought, well, I'm just going to take the diary and turn it into that format. And it sounds ridiculously simple, and of course it wasn't, because you, know, you have to write 100,000 words. But it was a very good guideline, and because I, I wasn't very precious about it, I, I was doing it kind of for a commercial reason. It meant I could write quite easily and not agonise over like in architectural writing. You were thinking about every single word, and then I was just very lucky. Got an agent, got a publisher, and you know, um, 
just continued writing and then after 12, 13 novels got fed up and decided to come back into architecture education, yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's quite How, long. Happens, how long did they take? Uh, it's, about a, it's about a year. I would spend three months writing flat out and then I would hand it over to my agent and then I would take about three months off and then I'd come back and do about two months' worth of editing. So it's about a six-month period, yeah. Yeah. That, that's it's quite, it was tough, yeah. And, and that process is what, what, what enabled you to stay? Did you, you lived on that? that? Uh, absolutely, I mean, actually made you know, reasonable money out of it. But I mean, I lived like that, full-time writing mm. for about 12 years. Yeah. And, then, and then what brought you back? And then just Sorry. a chance encounter with um, an, an architecture, a friend who was an academic who invited me to Johannesburg to, to be an external examiner. And at that point, I was beginning to tire of writing novels. You mean 12, 13 novels down, you're running out of ideas. Um, and I just thought, yeah, why not? Let me just go back into academia. Yeah. And you, you built it. You have to, I imagine, with curating something of this scale, you have, a, and as you alluded to in your speech this morning, you have, and as you mentioned just earlier in our discussion, you have a large number of people. I feel like you're, I'm asking. Um, a member of the BBC who's working on Eurovision, which is your favourite, and they're not allowed to answer. <laughs> Actually, I, I genuinely do not have a favourite. I genuinely do not. I, there, there, are, there are projects that speak more clearly or more directly to me than others, but what I'm most excited about is the... It's the kind of chorus... Yeah. And there is a chorus, because there are a lot of really nice pieces in this exhibition, particularly in the central pavilion in the Giardini. This is predominantly where the African-focused pieces are. Now, um, Leslie may wish she hadn't given such prominence to the work of David Ajay, given the revelations about that architect's abuse of his role within his practice that have emerged since the exhibition opened. But let's not dwell on that. Instead, let's talk about one of my favourite pieces here, which was an installation by Francis Kerre, the Pritzker award-winning architect from Burkina Faso, who's based in Germany. His piece is part domestic interior, part vernacular shopfront, the kind you might see in the country where Kerry is from. The shop is plastered in two slogans. One slogan says, Africa produces less than 4% of the world's carbon emissions. Second slogan says, just because our past was intercepted by others doesn't mean our future has to be. Francis Carey. So um, the interviewer now, when did you arrive? Uh, I arrived uh, yesterday evening. Okay. I, so When did you, how long have you been here? Yesterday also. How do you think about the Biennale? I love it. I love, I, I haven't seen all of it. I've yeah. seen the, just this. Pavil- just yeah. this pavilion yeah. and two or three of the national ones yeah, but yeah. I really love this pavilion It's yeah. normally it's very crowded with information Oh, exactly what I've been saying crowded with information and it's breathing, you know, it's really breathing yeah. that's what I love here yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about where mm. we are, describe the room yeah. we're in so here where we are we're actually in the last room or the last installation within our three installations. So we have this one is called uh, What Can Be. And What Can Be is, is, a, is the ending of uh, what is and what was. And this is the result. It is the result out of what was, what is, and what can be is a counteract. Counteract, like a study 
uh, on architecture in Africa before so modern time. Modern time means before new material, construction material has been introduced. Uh, and then, uh, so where you saw a certain quality, where uh, people was using what nature could offer, wood, clay, stone, whatever, to build. Okay? And what is, is with the introduction of uh, modern construction material uh, and then growing cities, you have a huge problem. Uh, quality of construction has become very poor, you know. So in many cities in West Africa, people stuck in little room, overcrowded, hot, you know, not a comfortable place to live. So this is reality, using too much plastic. So as a storage, whatever, as object, you know, as plate to eat, it is just a uh, so result of industry uh, products that are being floating toward the continent, cheap products that are not good for human health. At the first time, you could live with them because they're cheap, but in the long term, that is not the solution. And this here where we're sitting is what can be. This is my proposition what it can be. So what can be is to learn from the past. For example, people are using pots for storage, to store water. And those pots are made themselves out of clay. And here, the solution is to use this primary material, clay, to create a house, to build, but to integrate within the wall pots that serve as a, call it, call it an alternative way of storage. You know, you could store whatever you want inside, uh, so the, your household, your goods, and then in some of the elements, the world will let so-called uh, shelf in, embedded in the walls, and we have like this thing that you could see here where I put the construction material that I'm usually using, these bricks, um, but also tools to make the wall or to make the clay floor, and that is what it, we, he, we see here. So the pots are also used to create opening on the ceiling, but Biennale uh, uh, is you have to adapt and that why not to make it too heavy and just to demolish everything later. Uh, we just put very simple openings. Uh, but normally it will be put, putting light within the structure and also ventilation opening. So this is all about this. To see that you could use a very simple material and an object that is there to create a place that, that, that will provide comfort but also beauty and security to people. It's a really lovely little installation. Kerry's wall has these beautifully made earthenware pots embedded into it, which creates the sense of a building living and breathing around you. I love the shop as well, the way it suggests the vernacular of African architecture, which speaks to Africa directly, not mediated by anyone else. But I do wonder whether this idea and whether the scale of this installation can really contribute to what is a vast historical project implied behind the exhibition, namely the urbanization of Africa. Africa is changing very quickly. Yeah. A lot of people are moving out of poverty. Yeah. Not enough. Yeah. Is it possible to use these materials and systems of building and still provide 
uh, comfort and homes for masses of people. Yeah. So the, the, the fast-growing uh, population is a big issue in Africa. So at the same time, if you look at actually, uh, Africa is contributing with less than 4% of the carbon dioxide emissions, so which is part of climate change or whatever. So we have two things, rapidly growing cities with the need of housing, schools, infrastructure, whatever. Uh, but at the same time, the evidence that we need to protect the environment, you know. So we don't want these people to stop <laughs> and, and say, okay, we cannot build because of a, over a, a carbon dioxide. We can use locally available material really to provide these, these housing that are needed without causing a huge burden of the environment. That are what I think it is what we have to do and it is possible. Is there any evidence or are there any projects which are beginning to show this use of uh, alternative materials? Is there places that we should look at, examples, yeah. that you think yeah. show, this, mm. show this possibility? Yeah. First of all, my own work. So that's why I came to be uh, visible. Uh, this is what I'm being trying to use. I'm using wood, no matter so, so where it's possible trying to use wood. Where is possible, I'm using bricks uh, that are abandoned. Where is possible, I'm using clay to do it. But then with uh, the, aware, the growing awareness about, we see more architects in the continent that are trying to find solutions to tackle the issue of a housing problem, but also climatic issues, just to try to, to, try to use what is available and to do. There is a lot of tendencies that we really could see if you go through the Biennale. I think it has become evident that also you could deal this way, but I, uh, uh, win awareness. In the past, people being doing things that was not. But actually, the reason why Africa is now, for the first time in this scale, represented in the Biennale, is showing us that is a way that, that we will tackle positively the changes and you know finding solutions that are facing us. Our architects as Africa changes rapidly yeah. as the urbanization process happens. Do you feel that architects are being listened to? Yeah, the, the, the big in in Africa. Yeah, I mean. the big. The, yeah, I mean, it is a slow process. We have to say construction is mean. You need to mobilize a lot of resources. Okay, um, and then. Uh, the, 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 the mostly we see that people want to use what they, what they know, what they trust, you know. So it's not easy to, to really convince with, with alternative ideas. But I feel if you want to succeed, urbanization in Africa, so builders and architects need to work together. We know about it. The more the climate change is becoming a factor that de destroy uh, you know, entire communities' life because no more resources for them is left. Uh, I think that those from the professional part will be much more listening. But we also, we architects, need to listen uh, the, the need of people to be able to change. It is just together. It's not just one group. It is everyone part of the society should be involved in that debate, which is not easy, uh, of course, but we need it. The easiest way is what leads us always 
to do things and later we realize that is not bringing it may for short term bring wealth build something positive but at the end of the day we realize it may become a problem look at plastic for instance you know um how how important do you think this biennale might be in convincing people in africa of the importance of yeah. the, 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 the craft is it mm. yeah no i am i am i am quite positive uh, you know being visible creating awareness uh, is also a beginning of a new uh, development in any field so i think that is a clear message uh, that africa now has become the focus so as the place that is most underdeveloped uh, and that is the place uh, of the future uh, and it there's no way that this biennale will have a positive impact on the development of architecture in africa so tell me a little bit about the project in the north of Togo. Togo. This is a, a, a vision of one person from that culture. He is from the AV culture and he has a site. Uh, the site is it's, it's adjacent to a former site, a king, a king um, a site, a site of the north uh, people. Um, you know, the site of uh, the AV. Uh, it is exciting because they found a wall who was apparently seven meter high and three meter thick. And the, the funny thing is the question, was it built to keep people inside yeah, and get them not to run away from the king, or was it simply built to defend the people from outside enemy? This is already fantastic. But the great thing is to see that those kind of infrastructure existed in Africa some 600 years ago. It is fascinating. So it's, uh, a, so it's an archaeological site? Yes. And, and then I am invited now to create a culture center for the AV people because uh, uh, so once a year, a huge crowd, like 50, 60, 200,000 people, will pilgrimage to celebrate. And now this person asked me to come and design this place, which in include museums that we call Art Gal Galerie d'Art, many, many. Uh, and then a, a library, uh, and even to really to mimic a king palace, uh, but then um, a, 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 an auditorium uh, and a library, but also a platform where they will perform. And that is all about this culture, this culture center. Fantastic. It's going to happen soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. He's working on that. Check out my socials for what I had to say about Leslie's show. Here, though, I'm more interested in just acknowledging what they had to say for themselves, what Roberto, Leslie and Francis are doing to deliver a vision within a sense of crisis, within an idea that the resources that they have to their hand are finite and running out, but also how they think the relationships between different parts of the planet are unsustainable. I think, though, what is interesting is the deeper historical narrative, the human historical narrative, which doesn't speak of short-term crisis, but speaks to a longer, more historical process, even a more difficult and more painful one. But I felt that when the Biennale touched on that, it really sang. 
Now in the next episode, we're going to be visiting the Prada Foundation exhibition, Everybody Talks About the Weather, which is nearby, just off the Grand Canal. Now in that exhibition, we'll be talking to a curator who was thinking about the historical perspective and the contemporary crisis at the same time, as a way of understanding our relationship to the climate as it has evolved throughout history. But I really enjoyed speaking to Leslie, to Francis and to Roberto. It helped me understand where the Venice Biennale is right now and how best to think about the event, not simply as a platform for showing off, but as a means of understanding how architects are thinking about their practice. Personally, I might not always agree with that, but I do believe we need to meet in person to see the work, to see the models, see the pictures, see the drawings, rather than talk over Zooms. Our presence helps us take the temperature of the times. Talk to you soon. Super Urbanism was presented by Tim Abrahams and produced by Lucy Ditchman of the Feast Collective. It was a Machine Books podcast. Please do all those things you do with a podcast you like. Subscribe to it, like it, put it on social media, tell your friends all about it. And you can find more episodes wherever you seek out your listenings on different platforms. You know the deal. Anyway, there's more information about us at www.machinebooks.co.uk. Machine Books.